These are the daily lectionary comments for January the 13th. We're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 36, which speaks of, of uh, what God's plan is in great detail and especially ways that really help us to understand the New Testament era. And then Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul develops his argument about the difference between righteousness under the law and righteousness by faith. Ezekiel 36. I'm going to follow the basic um, thought progression by the prophet here. And this is, again, the, the Lord speaking to Ezekiel. I might point out to you, you may have noticed this, that almost all of Jeremiah, almost all of, of Isaiah, almost all of their prophecies were written in, in poetic verse. But you'll see that there's relatively little poetic verse in Ezekiel. His is almost all prose, just written in paragraphs. Just a different style and a different approach. But uh, that's, that's why they're, they, uh, they present very differently in some regards. Well, let's take a look at what Ezekiel, the Lord says to Ezekiel, essentially, uh, that, um, that the people have polluted the land. He cites two specific instances, blood and idolatry, okay? Violence uh, against one another or, and idolatry. And as a result of them polluting the land, and this is an interesting idea that because the people failed to follow the Lord their God, rather than just saying they have been bad people, which is true, they've been immoral and they are under the judgment of God, he says they polluted the land. And I want you to understand that there's a kind of ecology in, in the scriptures and in the Old Testament particularly, a kind of ecology, unlike ecology today, where the land is worshipped for being natural and natural things are considered really almost holy and artificial human origin things are, pollute the land. Um, th this is not the way uh, Moses uh, 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 brings this out. This is not the way God talks about this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the land is made holy by the people's obedience to God and by their disobedience and especially by idolatry, the land is polluted. All right, so they polluted the land, so I threw them out. I threw them out and I scattered them among the nations. But when they arrived among the nations, my people profaned my name. They're no longer polluting the land because they're not in it, but they're profaning God's name. And the way they are profaning God's name is because, as God puts it, uh, the peoples of the nations to which they have been driven say, these are people who have been driven from their land. <laughs> okay, in other words, uh, even the Gentile idolaters recognize that these people have not been faithful to their own God. So the Gentiles look down on the God of the Israelites. They profaned. They made God seem unholy and ordinary. Now, then God says, in this progression of thought, I am concerned about my name. I am concerned about the holiness of my name in all the world, not just by my people, but in all the world. So here's what I'm going to do for the sake of my name. Note that he specifies that what I am going to do with the people of Israel has to do with my name. I'm not doing this because the people deserve it. I'm doing it because the holiness of my name is necessary. Well, first, because God is holy. And secondly, because God's plan goes beyond simply his own people. This is what I'm going to do 
for the sake of my name. I'm going to vindicate my, the holiness of my name. I myself am going to vindicate the holiness of my name. The nations, not just Israel, but the nations, are going to know that I am the Lord. I will gather you, Israel. I will gather you and bring you back into the land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and make you clean. Now, that, that is a wonderful image that forms a backdrop to why John the Baptist would baptize and why the New Testament people enter into their relationship with God through baptism, a sprinkling with water. I will give you a new heart and spirit. In this case, uh, the spirit is, is a new inclination of your inner heart. So I'm going to make you a new person. And that's one of the things, of course, that baptism does. I will put my spirit on you. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, not a new inclination within a human being, but God's own Holy Spirit, he says, I will place within you, which, again, is another promise related to holy baptism and the New Testament era that God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, not just Israelites, but all different kinds of people. He will do this through the sprinkling of clean water uh, that will make the people clean and give them the Holy Spirit and a new heart. I, I will cause you to walk in my ways. This is one of the promises of the New Testament people of God, is that God writes his law on our hearts and leads us by the Holy Spirit. And finally, he says, you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the ultimate promise, of course, is that God is making for himself a people where he will be their God and they will be his people. And these are a people who will be drawn from all the nations of the earth so that when our Lord comes again, the harvest will include people from all tribes and nations and languages, uh, and they will be his people. The New Testament Holy Christian Church are the people of God. And in the New Jerusalem, it says explicitly, and that day in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, he will be our God and we will be his people, the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan. And all of this that Ezekiel is talking about, the Lord promises through Ezekiel, all of this finds its fulfillment in the coming of the Christ, in the establishment of the New Testament kingdom, in the establishment of the Holy Christian Church, in, in the uh, institution of holy baptism, the worldwide mission, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. All of this comes to fruition there. And all of this we see promised in Ezekiel chapter 36. So it's a wonderful uh, uh, chapter that really does help put in perspective God's overall plan. Very much like Isaiah, who spent a lot of time talking about the future glory of Israel and what God's future worldwide plans for Israel are. So Ezekiel, too, is speaking in very worldwide terms and in terms of, uh, of uh, not, not only what's going to happen now, but what will happen before the end of the age. Okay, so that's Ezekiel 36. All right, let's take a look at Romans chapter 4, where Paul is going to continue his discussion of, uh, of the, the righteousness of God. He's made the point uh, in the first two and a half chapters of Roman, that's human righteousness. The, the, the truth of the matter is we are just not righteous people, and therefore we can't pull ourselves up by the bootstraps uh, and just become righteous. Even if God gives us the truth and teaches us what true righteousness looks like, 
that doesn't mean that we are actually able to do it. So the righteousness of God is a way of becoming righteousness in God's eyes that does not involve our simply becoming what we are not. And so that's what Paul's been talking about. And he, he, he uh, introduces this as a righteousness from God apart from the law, apart from God's uh, instructions on what righteousness looks like. It's another kind of, of righteousness. And he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this isn't a new thing. In other words, Paul's argument here, and it's very important here in Romans chapter four, the point isn't that it used to be in the Old Testament, people were saved by keeping commandments and obedience to God and developing their own moral worth. But now in the New Testament, God's going to be lighter and he's going to give to us what, what he used to require that we do on our own. That's not at all. In fact, Paul is making very explicit that it has always been the way he is about to talk. Okay, Righteousness before God always has been a matter of faith. So what we have here is we have two fundamentally different ideas. One, we have the concept of trusting in a promise of God. And the other is obedience to God's commands, trusting in God's promises. Now, the promises are, are, uh, are built on what God has done, what God promises and why God promises it. So the promises are built on the work of Christ. And the, and the point is that what Christ has done is effective and therefore you can trust it. So trusting in a promise means receiving a gift. A promise is not something that you earn. A promise is something that God uh, uh, offers you. And, and by faith simply means you accept uh, and, and you, you, you take refuge in that promise. God promises for the sake of Christ that he will consider you righteous. And because Jesus' death and resurrection, you trust in the efficacy, the power of Jesus' death and resurrection to make you righteous before God, and you trust that God is faithful and does what he says, and therefore you receive that gift. The gift is not a freebie in the sense that God just snaps his fingers and decides not to count against you your own moral unworthiness. Christ's death and resurrection makes that powerful and, and possible. So the promise is built on, on not just a freebie, God snapping his fingers, but on a great deal of work and labor that needed to be done. But the work and labor was done by God and through his son, Jesus. So on the one hand, you have trusting in a promise. That's what is meant by faith. And then on the other hand, you have obedience to God's commands, that is, being a morally worthy person, being the kind of person that a holy person ought to be. And this is a matter of, of obedience and, 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 uh, and deserts. So here, we don't say that a person gets righteousness as a gift when you behave in a righteous way. We say, if you behave in a righteous way, God owes you to treat you as a righteous person. Your righteousness is rendered to you as wages. You have earned it. Now, there is a person who earned this righteousness, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth earned uh, what he got from his heavenly father. He actually did the things that righteousness requires. So we can say that Christ is righteous, um, not by fiat, because God just considered him righteous, but he, was, he actually was righteous and did do what righteousness requires. Now note that both trusting in God's promises and obedience to his commandments 
are required by God from us. Both are required. Both are there in the Old Testament and both are required. Both are here in the New Testament and both are required. One leads to righteousness for a sinner and the other does not. Trusting in promises leads to righteousness before God because of what Christ has done. Obedience to God's commandments do not lead to righteousness for us sinners because we are not able really to do what the law requires. Okay, now, the basic argument here that Paul is making <coughs> regarding Abraham is the question of when the promise came to Abraham and when the law came to God's people. And so he asked the question, when Abraham uh, was first blessed and, and considered righteous, was that before or after God gave the law, the Torah, to his people? Then the answer is, well, it was well before. God first came to Abraham and made a promise to him that he would make him the father of many nations uh, and that he would make him great and all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And the scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And Paul says, was that before or after God gave the commandments of the Torah? And the answer is, well before. It was long after this that God gave the commandments and commanded obedience from the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. Now, Paul is making the point that if righteousness before God could be achieved and, and was supposed to be achieved by obeying God's commandments, then the righteousness that we would have received as a gift by believing in, in God's promise would be voided. It would just go away. It would be as though a teacher says to a student at the beginning of the year, I will give you an A. You have an A in this course. I give it to you freely. And then it, 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 midway through the school year, the teacher were to say to the same student, well, <laughs> I meant I will give you an A only if you earned it. So if you earned it, of course I'll give you an A. Well, those are two different things. And if you make a promise at the beginning of the school year, and then halfway through the school year, you make the promise contingent upon you earning it, well, you never really promised anything to begin with. If the student earned an A, then you should give them an A, whether you ever promised them one or not. That's kind of the idea that, uh, that, uh, that Paul is making here. He's drawing a distinction between the law, what he calls circumcision, came after Abraham, uh, and, and, uh, and that circumcision uh, are what he calls the seal of righteousness. That is, people who are made righteous because they trust in God's promises seal or perform or perfect or demonstrate their righteousness before God by keeping his commandments. Very much the way Christians today receive the promise of God in baptism and through faith in Christ, and then demonstrate that they are Christians and perfect what God is doing in them by trying to walk in his commandments. But the point isn't that you were saved by grace because Jesus died for you, if you earned it. Well, you either earned it or you received it as a gift on account of what Christ did for you. Nevertheless, you should still try not to earn it, but to walk in it. So if God has made you a righteous person on account of Christ, and you trust in Christ, God is good to his promises, and he considers you righteous and treats you as though you were a perfect person. He also gives you commandments not to become a perfect person, but to walk in the righteousness that he has already given you. The, um, the Torah, it says, this is verse 12, it says the Torah is a, 
uh, is a means by which we walk in the footsteps of faith, okay? It's not how we achieve faith and, and the blessings of faith, but it's how we demonstrate that we trust God and we walk uh, in his ways. Faith makes the promise sure. Because when we talk about being saved by faith, what we mean is our salvation depends on God's faithfulness to his promise, not on our ability to earn it. And because it doesn't depend on our ability, and because God is always faithful, when our salvation rests upon faith in the promise of God, it is sure. However, the law itself, if we were, if we were to make sure our salvation by keeping God's commandments and being holy people, if, if that were the only way of being righteous before God, that would void the promise. And so the righteousness of the law is not given to us in order to become righteous. It is given to us in order to walk in the righteousness we have by faith. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 4. And note one last thing before I'm done. I know I'm running long again. <clears throat> the whole argument about how we are saved in the New Testament is drawn from the Old Testament. An important point we need to make here is that it has always been thus. In the Old Testament, people were saved, made righteous by trusting in the Lord their God, and then to demonstrate that God is their Lord, they would walk in the commandments that he gave them. It's the same in the New Testament. It's not that we used to be saved by keeping commandments, and now we're saved by faith. We have always been saved by faith, and we have always had commandments that we may walk in them to demonstrate that we are people of the Lord our God.